Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm with a, a friend that I haven't seen for a while, but I think I've known almost the whole time I've been in the United States. I think that's right, yeah. And whose work I've known for much longer than that, namely the estimable Paul Smith. <laughs> I don't know the estimable bit, but yeah. <laughs> All right, Paul Smith, comma, yeah, here I am. Here period. I am. Yes. Here you are in not very sunny Southern California, uh, in this bizarre quasi-mission space with faux flames that look quite dangerous, although they're simulations. They're, they're trying to heat up the atmosphere by a single flame. I think that lady's coat and hair <laughs> could be at some peril. Yeah. There's a kind of massive pipette protecting I, I've, I've already declined to stand so close <laughs> to that flame as she is now standing. <laughs> so, Paul, tell us what you're up to right now, what's happening for you. What's happening for me? Um, well, I'm coming off having um, just done a big anthology that took a lot of my energy and thought um, called The Renewal of Culture Studies. And I've been trying to like fish around for something new or, or, or to pick up strands of things that had like, kind of fallen by the wayside while I was doing that. And I, I'm, I think I'm hitting on something. I'm not really quite sure. But I, um, I did a little talk a little while back, which is, as some talks do, others don't. Others just lie fallow. But this one um, You mean the eight people who came to, to listen to me today? <laughs> you had eight people? That's pretty good. Well, that's <laughs> counting a couple of stray dogs as humans. Right, right, right. But this, this one kind of started to blossom um, after I'd given it. I decided to find... I was actually interested in it and um, was finding some ideas. And it, it's um, probably going to be a book, I think, that's what's going to be next, um, called Flowback. Flowback? Flowback. Um, and uh, didn't you write a book on Mr. Bovary or oh, Mr. Mr. Dr. Flowback. Bovary? Uh, that's Dr. Bovary to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and there's nothing about plumbing either, I promise. <laughs> Um, but uh, no, it started off with just a few kind of observations about um, the fact that all the discourse that you heard about globalization all had to do with flows. And, you know, the flows were going this direction, that direction. They were all about capital, people, uh, labor, the kind of a goods, commodities, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I thought, actually, all those flows that we thought were, you know, what constituted globalization, they've all started to either, like, dry up <laughs> or flow back the other way or flow somewhere different. Um, so, for instance, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the kind of what were assumed to be the kind of big, the major trade routes even, just the trade directions of it, yeah. are now south on south which yep. they weren't like even five, six years and ago. And the so-called metropole becomes irrelevant. It, well, I'm not sure it's ever going to become irrelevant. We can, we can only wish. But south on south. <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes, uh, the, the so-called metropole becomes a bit more marginalised or made to feel, and this is part of the whole thing, made to feel less secure about itself. Um, so there's a lot of things that have shifted from the original you know, like big ideas about what globalization constitutes. Right, right. kind of and, and that, thinking about just ways of articulating some of them, putting them together. And that also tropes blowback. Yes, exactly. Right. From, from yeah. the from the war, yeah, yeah. Um, the war and attendant uh, uh, unpleasantnesses. Blowback is one of these concepts that, like the military-industrial complex, fascinates me because it originates. 
they both originate on the right. Yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> isn't isn't blowback like straight out of the CIA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. their language, it's yeah. their vocabulary. Right, right. And military industrial complex, of course, was uh, our spiritual uncle Dwight D. Eisenhower, right, right. father of the freeway. Absolutely. But I was talking about flowback, not blowback. No, I know. <laughs> but what I mean is, what's interesting about your term, which I think is a neologism, is that it is both troping the, I think, very functionalist flow metaphor as utilised by Arjuna Paderai, but also the blowback idea of the CIA uh, as it has then been used by people to explain from a more critical perspective yeah. the response to US imperialism. No, that's so right. I think it's interest I think it's a great neologism actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it doesn't it's not just the Paderai. I mean you, if you pick up a like one of the standard textbooks that like those big anthologies that they use for textbooks on globalization these days. That's what it's all about. about flows of this, flows of that. Um, um, and I, I'm, that was partly what kind of got me kind of thinking about it in the first place because um, in, the, in, the, in the, my university, George Mason, we got this huge um, brand new, pretty much brand new undergraduate major that's got like 800 students in it called Global Affairs. And I think you've had a few of those, haven't you? Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but not quite as many as they've got. <laughs> as they got this room is the for. Wilt Chamberlain major. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what happens in, mo in a lot of the classes in this thing is they, they, they plunk these like, you know, doorstep-type anthologies in front of the students. Right. And I just, right. ha I just happened to go and look at some of them one day in someone's office and they were like, no, 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 that's not right anymore. Why are you teaching this? thing for when in fact that's actually now it's really historical <laughs> you know like sure. so so that's that that's the the edge of the book is to say you know um globalization is now you can now talk about it historically rather than just as something which uh you know was just going to be there every everywhere take over the world and be like the air we breathe kind of thing now in terms of the reference for this apart from if you like the real material economy when we talk about the discourse of this, is it worth talking about the discourse as described by, I don't know, you know David Held or Arjuna Paderai, or is it better to talk about it as described by Thomas Friedman? In other words, you know, people who write doorstopper textbooks or people who write books that are even more full of lies and stupidity, but whose books are really efficacious, not necessarily the formal educational curricular level but at a level that is infinitely more proposing mm. um, if you i mean it's certainly true that a lot of the students who are in this kind of program they they love freedom for instance mm. i mean and and they understand what they're doing to be very close to um what what he thinks um like thinking about globalization is and you know the, the, a lot of the arguments he makes are, are, are that appear to him, uh, sorry, appear to them as like common sense in a certain way, um, and some of the conundrums that those ideas bring up don't appear to be conundrums. I mean, like you know, the the classic one, which is, um, you know, like, well, isn't it better to um, give that Indian woman the job so that she can have childcare for her kid, um, even though childcare for her kid is actually kind of holding on to the kid while she works 24 hours a day. Um, is that better for her or not? I don't know. <laughs> um, for for these for a lot of these kids, like you know, reading Friedman says to them, "Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's better." Yep. So there's a there's a kind of benign uh, um, well, a, a, a presumption of, of 
benign American or Northern activity that these kids love. They, they, they think, well, okay, it's big, big historical change and you know, like all very exciting and the world is um, like going to be a like, smaller place and bigger at the same time, but we're not doing anything wrong. It's all fine. But, but which is which is what's interesting about you talking about the blowback because that's that, that's the the other side of it. A lot of these kids again don't understand that there's anything wrong with the economic setup, but they do get that there's not something not great about the war <laughs> or about the um, the kind of increased lack of security in the north and so and so they 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 also come across a contradiction. And these are people we're now talking about who, since they would have been able to read a newspaper if they ever have read a newspaper, would have known a country at war. The yeah, country's been genuinely at war for more than half their lives. Absolutely, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, it's not just the, the kind of act of war itself, it's also all the like, at-home security processes. That, I think, I think that's what people most notice, mm -hmm. <laughs> like these kids most notice. Now, in terms Even though they never experienced probably the, you know, anything before, I think they, they understand that it's kind of a bit odd that you, know, you still have to take your shoes off <laughs> to get through the airport. And, um, they, they understand that they live in a like, highly, highly evolved security state. Now you wrote a book getting on for 15 years ago now that was about globalization. Millennial Dreams, yeah. 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 Tell us a bit about <laughs> that book and what you see as being different today and similar today. Well, um, no, that's a, that's a book in itself <laughs> to do that. I mean, the, the, the bottom line on Millennial Dreams was, was in the title. It was the, um, you know, the, what was really happening at, at the millennium or around about the millennium is that globalization was being announced. It was being um, like willed into existence. It, it, you know, it's here, it, it's here, it's done, that's what we got, and that's what I meant by a millennial dream. It was just the, 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 um, the dream of a perfectly seamless functional capital um, had, was, was announced and we were supposed to believe it was therefore actually instantiated. <laughs> um, so that, that, that was, the, the book was an argument against that. It was, a, it was an argument against, against, that wanted to say, um, by, by looking at particular places, um, I, I was looking at Germany in, during reunification, um, Britain in the kind of changeover from Thatcher to Blair, and um, the United States after the first Gulf War. I kind of wanted to say, no, actually, the, 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 what's, what's going on here is something very much more complicated than the like, uh, instantiation of a perfect kind of capitalism. There's a lot of, um, a lot of actual history, if you like, to, to consider before you can even begin to kind of think about what this globalization thing really is. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose I, I, if that's one one uh, bookend, the other bookend is um, I, I've missed out the whole of actual what actually what globalization might have been. So I've come out the other end. So then, you know, in millennial dreams, I was saying, yeah, it's not really here yet, <laughs> or it's not really here in the way you think it is. And now I'm saying, well, and now it's different from what you said it was. Um, so I, I probably don't know anything about what happened in the middle. 
<laughs> I was probably asleep. <laughs> well, you were looking at it from a global north perspective, yeah. uh, by which I don't necessarily mean your own epistemology, although that may also be true. Uh, it's not for me to say, <laughs> Governor. But you can nudge. <laughs> <laughs> it's what my job's worth. But in terms of particular countries you know, that were going through massive transformations yeah. as part of this wider process, right, right. and now it, you're looking at it in a, in, a, in a different way, a different historical moment, different place. Well, and, and, and uh, I'm not sure I... I was looking at it like I was certainly not sharing the kind of standard northern epistemology of it. No, um, no, sure. Uh, and this time I'm kind of like trying to think about it slightly differently in ways which I, you know, I'm educating myself about um, like how other people think about it or have thought about it. Um, there's a big difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my uh, um, my understanding of. Um, you know, what, what I'm talking about is um, you know, limited by experience. I mean, I, I want to find out more and, and do more about it, but um, I, like most of us, I don't know much about it. So I'm, it's a project. It's a project. Now, <laughs> speaking of projects, let's get back to what you mentioned before and one that is now concluded, which is this Bravura new volume that you've edited. Can you tell us a bit more about this project of resuscitation? <laughs> um, well, I, th I think the, the word renewal was, in the title, Renewal of Culture Saves, was probably a bit ironic, or at least a little tongue-in-cheek on my part, um, just because it's... Uh, culture studies is still new for everybody who like, enters it, I think. Um, and. It doesn't, even though it's 50 years old or more, it doesn't seem to have like, lost that kind of sense that it's this new thing. Um, so I thought it, it was just a, it, it was a fancy to say, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the renewal. But, but what, I, what, I was, what I was concerned about... Some might call it Olympian. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Some might, especially on a podcast. <laughs> um, but I, I was just, I was thinking about culture studies from a particular point of view. Um, which is one that has been forced upon me in lots of ways, um, which is to say, come what may, willy-nilly, however we like it or don't like it, um, there is a certain amount of actual, solid institutionalization of cultural studies in this country right now. And I, I, I mean, I've taught in cultural studies programs now like, non-stop since 1984, right? Um, and just the mere fact of their being in the place that they're in, like actually offering degrees to uh, students. So someone comes out with either a PhD or a BA that says cultural studies, made me think. You know, um, we need to we need to be a bit more kind of circumspect about what we're actually offering. What was what 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 particular bit of goods we're selling? And I've, I've always been um, constitutionally opposed, I think, to the, the kind of, you know, complete libertarian um, view of cultural studies that uh, I think has been kind of useful for cultural studies for a long time. Um, so even though it's been useful, I don't think it's necessarily been particularly good. Um, so part of the argument is, you know, we, if, we, if, we're offering a, if we're offering an actual diploma... <laughs> 
then someone's got to be able to say at some point. Um, well, what I mean when I say cultural studies <laughs> is this, and not just some sort of like elaborate, you know, we're in, interdisciplinary and we have fun. And we talk about like cool and sexy things like identity and uh, race and ethnicity and uh, gender and sexuality. It's got to be able to do something more than that. It's got to be able to say, and we talk about those things in this way. Let's say we, we have particular um, methodological and actual methods um, that we can use, that we can, um, we can say anyone who does cultural studies should be familiar with these kinds of ways of proceeding, should know how to work with them, operate them, um, otherwise they shouldn't get their driving license. So that, that that was the that was my position in the book. Um, then there's like 30 contributors who come at that, um, you know, with their own peculiar, <laughs> um, not peculiar in a nasty sense, but uh, their own personal ways of approaching that kind of uh, claim that I'm making. Hang on one second. Excuse me, miss. Could we get could we get a server at some point for my friend? No, we get it. We couldn't. No, we don't exist. <laughs> We're inaudible. Anyway, sorry. So, oh, don't ask it. <laughs> this is the invisibility of masculinity. It's such a tough life here in the West. I can't tell you. The old boy's just staring off to see if he could possibly order a drink. And I think he, I think that was an intervention rather than an outburst. <laughs> so <laughs> you've got 30 contributors. I think this. I think it's 30. I, I, I lost count of them after give a while. There's so, so many of them. And, they were such a lot of trouble. Were they? <laughs> Did they, they were corralling cats, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they weren't much trouble, actually. They were all... Well, that's a big project. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it's a substantial book in lots of ways. It, it maybe doesn't do everything that I wanted it to do, but then no book ever does, I guess. Um, but it's it, it certainly got a lot of... a lot of challenges in it, um, a, lot of, um, a lot of ways of kind of conceiving of the field with cultural studies in ways which I think a lot of people still don't really want to. Um, and if they ever get around to it, we're there to help. Tell me about <laughs> some of the challenges as you see them. Well, I think, I think one of them is, is, is just simply overcoming what I said just now, overcoming the idea that um, you know, any cultural studies project is allowed to be methodologically and theoretically um, what should I say, opportunistic. Ill-defined, <laughs> promiscuous magpie like. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, that's worked for some people in some ways, but it's not a recipe for, um, you know, what should we put it in this, put it in university terms, it's not a recipe for the, the transmission of knowledge. Well, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's not, I'll tell you why it's not a good idea. It, it's why people shouldn't try to be either Ronald Bart or Megan Morris. Right. <laughs> Whatever you think of either of them. Right. Uh, they're in, apart from a few things like structural analysis of narrative, these people are not laying out how you go get from A to Z. Right. That's why it's, there's, a, there's an issue. But abutting that, from my perspective, is that this is all very well for people who like the idea of the reviewer aperçu toting critic, but for, you know, your common or garden two veg undergrad, yeah. what am I supposed to know and how am I supposed to know it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a surprising amount of like um, 
like hero worship amongst a lot of the kind of practitioners of cultural studies. I'd like that. Could I get some hero <laughs> you, worshippers? I'm sure you have some. How could I become a hero? I'm sure you have some. We don't but, need another. But, but there, there, start there, singing Journey or Foreigner songs <laughs> together now, like in that commercial. Right. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of um, a lot of what I think of as like certainly kind of politically wrong um, uh, tendency to kind of say, okay, because someone like, yeah, who should we say, like Leo Bassani is brilliant, um, and he is, doesn't mean that that's, that can constitute a field for you. Well, and also <laughs> right. can't a lot of that extremely individualistic, highly interpretative, very brilliant writing is simply not replicable yeah. by ordinary plumbers. Exactly, exactly. It's just not. Exactly. Or even understandable by many of them. Hi, uh, very good, thanks. So, I, I order a drink? Yeah, yes. I'd love it. Do you have a glass of Zinfandel of some sort? Zin, um, yeah, I can't remember exactly what we have. Let me grab a menu for you. Okay. I've, I've, been, I've been becoming an expert in American Zinfandels in the last little while. Actually, it's probably a long one. I just didn't notice. <laughs> yeah, we only have one uh, Zin. Well, I'll have it then. Alrighty. <laughs> Can I get a cup of tea, please? Sure. Yeah. Um, you have a preference on? Just, uh, you know, black and no sugar. And... Would you like cream or anything? No. Sure. Builders tea without sugar and milk. <laughs> right. <laughs> In any event. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I. In some ways, it is the task, I mean, to go back to, to the origin of this, mm. it really is the task of having to you know, actually teach people over the course of a certain amount of time mm. and hand them a diploma at the end of it that says cultural studies. That's, what, that's the real motivation to kind of think about some of those things again. So you, if, if, you, if you want to be able to do that, you, have to do, you ha actually have to have some kind of structure. Um, or at least a little bit more than um, it currently seems to be out there. So for a long time we've been thinking at George Mason about how that looks um, as a kind of, as a curricular matter. And um, we, you know, we're, we're always like shifting and changing it, but we've, we've got something pretty solid that's been there in place for quite a long time. Um, and we think it works. So a lot of the um, a lot of the positions I take kind of have that as either the, Paul is the matrix. Paul is easy position taker. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a lot of the positions I take have that as a matrix or yeah. as the product. I mean, I'm, yeah. it depends how you see it. Um, but that's that's what that one's about. I don't. I, I really. I, I really was kind of nervous about um, the reception that we get. Because I know a lot of people, and quite influential people in cultural studies, just don't want to hear this. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Not normally people who teach vast numbers of undergraduates. Right. That said, <laughs> let, let me take this back to another book of yours, and I, you could probably guess which one I'm talking about. You know more about my books than I do. <laughs> well, that wouldn't take much. Anyway, no, a book of yours that I really love, and... I think is just I think is a classic actually. Clint Eastwood, a cultural production. Oh, Toby, why didn't you tell me before? I, I've been looking for the one person in the country who liked that book, <laughs> and lo and behold, it turns out to be you. <laughs> Did you not know that I really loved that book? No, I didn't. Oh, no, I, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Um, I, I, I can tell you the, uh, the the one positive thing that anyone has ever said to my face until now about yeah. that book was after it came out, uh, I was at 
of a party in Pittsburgh. And they have parties in they Pittsburgh? They do, actually, yes, yes. And um, this guy turned up who I didn't know at the time, or I did know who he was when he told me who he was. And he said, the chapter, the chapter in that book on um, the uh, Charlie Parker movie, Bird, he said, it's brilliant. He said, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, a, this turns out to be Isaac Julian, so I was oh. I was I was kind of chuffed. Well, there you go. <laughs> so a very lovely man. He is and yes, a, yes. a very very gifted filmmaker and smart absolutely, guy. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I loved it. Well, it thank had, you. I'm I'm had, so pleased. I've often wondered if it uh, suffered a little bit by coming out the same year, almost almost the same minute as that Chris. Frailing, Grayling, Frailing I don't biography. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, yeah. I know yours wasn't a biography, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both about Clint Eastwood. Well, they're, they're looking for different markets. and. Um, yeah, but, sure. well, I thought your book could have been, maybe it was, I don't know this, but certainly had the potential to be a, a real crossover book. I also think it is, uh, in cultural media studies, the only seriously good study of a star that I've read. And the reason I raise it is not just to suck up to you, Although, no, you can do that. That's I'm, fine. Yeah, so. You know, you obviously enjoy that. <laughs> why not? It's, it's a good job people can't see on the podcast. So this this Cheshire cat grin I got. <laughs> but seriously, it's a book that really, and it's a long time since I read the whole thing. I've, I've used it at different times, often since. Perhaps in an incipient way, but nevertheless lays out how it gets from A to Z. It does tell you how you might do this. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I thought of it in the context of what you were just saying. Well, uh, you can imagine doing an. One can imagine trying to do a book like that and knowing roughly how you went about it. I, I, that's that was the the goal. Yeah, I mean, um, and I think it looks like that because, I mean, I I, I probably can't. Um, I probably can't relay them all right here, right now, but a lot of, or most of the issues that the book takes up were not issues really in the end about Eastwood himself uh, or about his films, or, but were more theoretical issues that were in film and media studies um, and in cultural studies in, in general. Um, that I wanted to like try to, I wanted to try to contribute to theoretically by looking at a particular. Said, no, you agnostic case. about who he really was. Yeah. In in some ways, it doesn't really matter. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of the things that that happen in that career, and you know, it's it's an interesting career, and it's um, it's thrown up some like amazingly good films and some really terrible ones. <laughs> um, but my my attitude towards it all along was simply, well, you know, he's he's just a professional, you know, yeah. he's just someone. Yeah. He's, he has his good days, his bad days. Doesn't he gets on and does the job. Yeah. And it was and so it was. There was no point in sort of saying, and he's a fascist, or you know. Um, you didn't go in for those hit <laughs> jobs. You did have a go at him at one point about all those vitamins he takes. Yes. No, <laughs> and, and and look at me now. I probably take just as many. <laughs> You know, um, I was on a plane last week, and I watched J. Edgar. Oh yeah, I haven't seen which it yet. I've yeah. not seen yeah. before. There's an, in, and you touch on this in the book, and you wrote a piece about him before in your Men and Feminism book, I think, yeah, yeah. on this. But he really problematizes masculinity big time yeah. in so many of his films, I think. And it's hugely present in J. Edgar. Yeah. I mean, 
both in the ways you'd expect and perhaps ways that wouldn't be quite so obvious. Right, right. It's deeply impressive. Oh, I, I, I'm, I can imagine, and it's not not a surprise, let's say. Yeah. 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 I, but I haven't seen the film yet. But there's a, there's a there's a world of his filmmaking that really questions the macho man. Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. I agree. Um, I agree. I hope you do a second edition <laughs> that takes the story forward. Uh, as he becomes an old bloke like you and me. Yeah, he's an a bit older than us. <laughs> yes, but I mean, he was probably about our age. No, he was 10 years older than us yeah. when the book came out. But now he's really old. Yeah, yeah, no, he is. He's ancient. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he's still churning this stuff out, and he remains a fascinating figure. I mean, this Super Bowl commercial. The Detroit one, yeah, yeah. That is being, was seen by many people as uh, a support of Blue Collar America as a statist project. Yeah, yeah. No, no indeed. Uh, and no. therefore is an enunciation of his allegedly beloved libertarian Republican politics. Right. Okay. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, no. And Gran Torino, another amazing statement on, on race and, and masculinity. No, I agree. And, and, I, and I think he, he keeps on doing it. The, the, the real question would be whether that ever, ever transcends what I just said, that he's a professional and he'll do a job just because the job's there. Um, it, it doesn't mean anything about how he's thinking yeah. ideologically. Um, he may he may even disagree with, you yeah. know, yeah. He, he may completely disagree with that whole kind of um, Super Bowl yep. advertisement personally. I mean, that... But, that, but that's the kind of issues that um, I think even these days in film and media studies, a lot of people just go running after those issues no, way too easily. No, you absolutely sidestep and deliberately without avoid, sidestepping without avoiding interiority right. as an attribute of an author right. in the book. And you explain that very well. You explain authorship debates and so on. Uh, nevertheless, let's accept all that Foucauldian, Bartian crap and just say, okay, he's just a social sign and he's just a professional or he's, things are circulating around him that he's partly responsible for, blah, 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 blah. Right. Nevertheless, lots of these things are incredibly interesting in that as projects, they are contra the ideology for which he allegedly stood more than almost anybody else one can think of yeah. when we were teenagers and in our 20s and 30s. Sure, sure. That's all I guess. Yeah. No? No, I, no, I understand that perfectly. And um, I, I, I suppose I wouldn't discount the possibility that um, he didn't really want to, he, he really in the end wasn't comfortable standing for those things. Um, and that might well have impelled certain things about, um, about his films from there on in. Um, certainly, I think it, it gave him something to play off. Yes, that's um, right. He's always, because that's the implicit price deflator, isn't it? We're always thinking of him in terms of Dirty Harry. Right. Somebody was telling me just the other week that they were talking to a class about Dirty Harry and they had to pause as they realised no one no in one the room yeah, yeah, yeah. knows who that is. <laughs> and they all know who Clint Eastwood is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So it's kind of, he's moved on. <laughs> and now we're going to see him in a reality series. That I didn't wife know. Has sold. That His I didn't wife know. has just sold a reality series about the family. See, I'm I mean, this so is, behind the times. This is why I'm telling you, in your dotage, in 10 or 15 years, you have to do Vol 2. Oh, okay, all right. I'm gonna, I think it should be called Clint Eastwood coming from behind. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> 
But anyway. I, th I hope he's dead at that point. <laughs> Here comes our, our drinking material. Thank you. Here we are. Thank you very much. We have two different types of black tea, so it's probably both. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you, sir. So anyway, just getting... Anything else for you, Fine, thank you. Thinking through this, this methodology question... Cheers. Cheers. Well, you must have confronted this question from a parent, or a dean, or a young colleague, or a grad student. How do you how do you do your cultural studies? Well, <laughs> if I'm talking to a parent or a dean, I don't say anything that I'm about to say to you. <laughs> um, but how to frame this? I had uh, I had a very interesting conversation with John Frove a few years ago, which he probably would want probably not to take responsibility for here um, and that's fine I, I, I may have misremembered or um, exaggerated it for my own purposes but basically we had this conversation where we we kind of agreed um, that cultural studies really hadn't yet done anything that the Frankfurt School had not done um, and I, I think I would add to that and it's not done it in a much less smart way. <laughs> um, so there's a there's at least some kind of um, lineage to the way I think about cultural studies that isn't the kind of standard lineage of either the British um, Birmingham School, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, cultural studies, or really the American one when it comes down to it. Um, and it goes through the Frankfurt School and back to Marx. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the, um, you know, for, for me it's almost like a, a kind of pleonasm to say, you know, Marx is cultural studies. It, it, you know, it, it's, it's always already there. It's always already there. It's a, it's a waste of time to add the, add the adjective Marxist <laughs> because it's always, it, it should always already be there. Um, so, the, so for me, the, the, the issues, um, the, I mean, many of the issues that still uh, abide theoretically, methodologically, even just in terms of like, you know, pragmatic method in cultural studies, are ones which Marxism in its various, in various parts of its tradition has also grappled with um, and sometimes has come up with an answer, sometimes hasn't. Um, an, an, an example would be, you know, one of one of the sorry to say, one of the subsets of Marxist thinking that I'm always very interested in, quite unfashionably, I think, is um, the regulationists. And I mean, whenever I teach a political economy class, I always teach Michel Alietta's uh, work. I always teach those those things. The reason is, I, I think, that. They, they're making an argument about the relationship, they're essentially making an argument about the relationship between um, like the particular moment of capital, capital's organization and the kind of civic and uh, political institutions that it has to... Um, Let me provide my dropping. Right. Yes, thank you. That was for my my previous guest, yes. so we'll need another one for this guest. Your, your colleague will sort that out. Good. Okay, thank you again. Yeah, Sorry, yes. 
So they make, they're making an argument about the particular relationship between capital's organisation at any given moment and the political and civic institutions that they need, the capital needs, in order right. to um, to have that organisation work. And I've always wanted to have that um, that theoretical position inside procedure, if you like, carried over so yeah. that it, it becomes explicitly also about culture. Um, because I, you know, I, I still believe, and I think this is this is what I'm always like dedicated to trying to like demonstrate or argue or just insist upon um, that the the very nature of uh, any cultural object is dependent. Um, but that's not a simple dependent dependency. It's dependent upon uh, many many factors, and and your job as a Marxist cultural studies person is always to try to enumerate as much of that as possible. So that that's the that, that's the kind of general project. I should, uh, since I'm talking to you, I, I can I can I can say this. In one of our, one of my classes just recently, um, we were we were reading your Global Hollywood um, two, the collective volume. <coughs> um, and basically, we think it's wonderful. Except there's one thing in there that we, as a as a group, we thought kind of needed to get um, a, a slight sort of nuance in, which is, although I'm I'm probably even more antagonistic to like the textualists of the world than you are. You know, the the ones who just go and read all the nuances of any given text, you know, until their legs fall off. Um, I do think that as you as you explain and shift the terms of description of, of like very complex industries in very complex kind of national and international things, the nature of the text itself will change, and 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 we will at some juncture, how much we don't want to, have to take account of that. Right? The the, the 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 text itself does also change, so then it becomes possible to think about doing the work the other way around. Kelly, come and join us. We're still recording. Hi. Can I introduce Kelly Gates, Paul Hello, Smith? Please meet you. Come sit and no, 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 not at all. We're, he can edit this. He's just no, he's just doing a, mounting a vigorous critique of Global Hollywood too. No, so no, 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 I need no. all, all the supporters I can get. It's not a vigorous. Critique. No, 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 seriously. It's talking it, about, it, it's it's about it, the way texts must inevitably change through their handling and their experience and their suffusing across different cultures as they move through space and time. Well, that, that's that, that's one way of saying it, but that's not the only <laughs> that's not the only thing that I would want to say either. Is yeah. that 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 on a on a very kind of um, fundamental level about the, the kind of character of the text, or even if you want, genre uh, or kind of text that gets produced. Yeah. Um, you know, thing, things change. Things um, things change because of the very things that that book is describing. And so I. I mean, the intertext, mm. in a sense. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, just want, wanted to yeah. sure. make, make that point through that book because sure. you, because I love the book. I love what it does, um, and that's not just getting you back for the Eastwood thing. I was uh, a, a few minutes ago, Kelly. Kelly Gates was in the podcast a year, or maybe a year ago. I was just telling Paul that his book, Clint Eastwood: A Cultural Production, is one of my favourite books of all time, and specifically, it's I think the best by far study of a star 
I've ever read. It's just an. I don't know if you've read it, but it's it's fantastic. Well, get on and read it. Yeah, get out there. It's fantastic. And we've got to get you I, a drink while we're while we're. I'll tell you what. I'll, you you read that, and I'll read your new book, which um, I was just told about the other day by Eric, in fact, who likes it a lot. Does so. Eric have a last name? Zinner. Oh, Eric Zinner. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, but that's a, that's a good thing, right? It means he doesn't publish stuff he doesn't think is it, good. It is. This is a this is a fabulous <laughs> book. What yeah. our biometric future? Yeah. Wonderful book. Well, and I could have used it. I could have used knowing about it at, at this very moment. I was just talking to Toby about the Global Hollywood book because I'm teaching it. Um, I'm teaching a graduate class called um, Culture Media Technology. Oh, you are? So I'm just going to start uh, next week teaching a graduate course called The Cultural Study of Technology. Okay. Well. <laughs> so I'd like so to see your I support. would like to have you a book for this because, um, okay. I mean, Toby's The Global Hollywood is one in there. But what, all I did with it was I, I just decided to um, pick up like half a dozen books that I thought were fun. I didn't, I didn't try to make a big comprehensive study yeah, oh, and yeah, I thought no, if, if we can make something come of this then, then it's not so bad as the actress said to the bishop <laughs> indeed <laughs> um, sorry uh, <laughs> two cups of tea is anybody you, you, could, you could have inserted that phrase almost anywhere in anything that we'd said this, this evening this microphone is sort of simulating an old school microphone this is the Larry King microphallic rather than microencephalic <laughs> recording device you know I was living in Mexico last year and I recorded a podcast with a friend, at the end of which he felt that he'd been cheated because all I used was this laptop. And he wanted something that looked more microphonic, so he bought me this as a gift. And one of the things that's good about this is that I found that a number of interviewees or interlocutors start staring at the screen and stop focusing on what they're saying. Funnily enough, the microphone ends up being an odd, fun artifact and is not a disturbance in a way that I thought it would be and in a way that these screens can be. Does it pick up the sound well? No. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just recording all the ambient sounds. No, it's, it's actually pretty good. It's pretty good. In any event, um, so we were checking... Sorry, let me go back. What I landed up doing was uh, I had... I had Anish Anish's book on virtual migration, then Global Hollywood, then then one of Bernard Stiegler's like, rants, um, the, the decadence of industrial democracies. Next week is going to be David Columbia's... Um, oh, computational logic. The social logic of comp yeah. computation. Cultural logic of computation. Cultural logic, yeah. I'm sorry. I and have that then, on my syllabus as well. And then Alex Galloway the week after that. And, and I thought, I don't really need both Columbia and Galloway to do this job for me. I need something else. I need something to kind of go out into a different direction. And it sounds like what you're doing would do that. You know what else would be good, but it won't be out till this summer, is Jonathan Stern's new book on the MP3. That would, that would go in the right direction too, yeah. I was hoping to assign that, but it won't be out in time. So now we Your boyfriend, Rick Maxwell's book is about to come out. My boyfriend? I don't know Rick. <laughs> is, it, is it the book you wrote with him? Yeah. Yes. We have this book coming out in three weeks called Green Oh, your Media. boyfriend? No, your boyfriend. 
My boyfriend, Rick, her boyfriend, her former boss. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, Rick Maxwell and I just wrote this book called Greening the Media. Yeah, no, I'm, so I, I, I that's going to, to one that's of the going to be the most important one. Of, no, just kidding. I listened to one of the pods. But tell me a lot this. of ambient noise in that. Sorry about that. So tell me this. Uh, Paul was just saying that he felt as though it was pleonastic to say Marxist cultural studies because Marxism has to be as a beating heart within cultural studies. So when it comes to the technology stuff, many people would say, perhaps from an earlier epoch, that not understanding the role of technology was a core failing in Marx and in Marx's Specifically what happened when genuinely, in what we would think of as industrialised, mechanised, big factories, rather than the small quasi-artisanal quasi British model. When, in other words, the US Fordist model, which emerged really after Marx, became the dominant global atlas. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, certainly there are lots of uh, Marxists and non-Marxists who like, understood the the Fordist model and what came after. Um, but you know, the answer to your question is in, what, in the way you posed it. Marx didn't get there. Marx didn't see. Well, he wasn't there. He didn't see that. Um, and you know, I mean, it's a moot point whether you, you think that was predictable or not. Um, it doesn't really matter. I think if you, you can still take a lot out of Marx in terms of technology, just looking at the way he talks about what he did see and talk about um, the, the very peculiar relationship that capital sets up between technology and human labour. Even, even, if, even if you get nothing else from Marx, that is all there. It's all sort of like, it's, uh, it's almost like a... Um, a Fritz Lang movie is. You know, it's kind of blood and guts on the one hand and hard steel on the other. And, yeah. Um, he, he saw something and he saw that that particular confrontation or that particular um, collision was like crucial for the actual kind of structuring of the logic of capital. So I think, you know, you, you, you'd have to be, you'd have to be, as you say, uh, unwilling, let's say. Uh, if I get you to move there, can sorry, just to help with recording. Yeah. Okay. You'd have to be un, un, unwilling and uncharitable to uh, miss that. And, uh, miss that. Well, I and, then, and then after that, you have, you know, depends how far you want to go with this, but the, you, you have the Marxist critiques of technology um, anywhere from Frankfurt School on. And they don't stop. Well, two things about that. One is the extent to which one can legitimately describe the Frankfurt School as Marxist. Right. And then the second okay, thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> what about the interest in, in a sense, conventional American studies in technology? And by this I mean things that I deeply admire. You know, Leo Marx, Leo Marx yeah, yeah. Uh, David Nye, and so on, where they fit in. All, all the way through David Noble and into yeah. science. science and technology studies now. I, I'd say the same things about them as I'd say about cultural studies, that Marxism as a, and you call it the beating heart, and I'm not sure anyone sees it that way, but certainly as a, a 
a very flexible and necessary resource within those fields of thinking. Yeah. But David Noble denied, isn't it? Often denied. But David Noble couldn't have written. Excuse me, losing my voice. David Noble couldn't have written anything without having like really, really kind of internally digested his marks. I'm, I'm saying it's, yeah, it's denied, sometimes it's not apparent, but it doesn't have to be, right? That's not always... No, fair enough. Even strategically, it's not always what you want to be doing. Now, we got into talking about this because I asked you about the how-to-do questions, and I referred to... Uh, Paul has a new book out that he's edited, a big book, on renovating cultural studies. I saw it, yeah. I saw it, and I read a few of the essays in there. It's really good. We were chatting about his project there and I said that I thought that the Clint East for the Cultural Production book was a great instantiation of how to go about these things. If you go back to the first book of yours that I read, maybe your first book, Discerning the Subject? Not my first book, but my first hit. Book that people like me would know. <laughs> my first hit. Your first hit. What was your first book? Um, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, you're going to have to find out. It's, it's was too, it like Andrew's? It's, it's just too, completely... Two way, ba two way back in the past. You know, Andrew has this article. Andrew Ross. Yeah. Um, that is written by Andrew T. Ross that he's incredibly ashamed of. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Partly because, not only but partly because it's signed by Andrew T. R. Ross. Well, it, it'd be even more ashamed if you, if you actually filled in what the T and the I stood for. Yeah. <laughs> so, Neven, um, I apologise for not, not knowing your first book, but the first, the first book of yours that I'm aware of and that I read was Discerning the Subject, yeah. which is maybe about 1988. Yeah. Uh, the year after. I can remember that far back. The year after a book you co-edited, Men in Feminism. Which, which is about to get re-released. I'm very pleased to hear that. <laughs> really? I think it's a great book. Uh, and I, I owned it before I owned your, your monograph, Discerning the Subject. Discerning the Subject, I think of as not nearly as much a cultural studies book as Clint Eastwood, a cultural production. And I think of as high literary theory of its day. Looking at literary theory, there's nothing about literature in it at all. Yes, but it's using <laughs> those modalities, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it, it was. It was a book about the uh, about the theory that I saw around me. Um, working in a literary and cultural studies program, um, teaching a lot of film and media. Um, that was that was the stuff I saw. I always, I always didn't want to call it literary theory because I never, I never saw what it did for literature. <laughs> In fact, I, you know, even now I can't think of what it does for literature. Um, that was a little bit, I suppose. I mean, there was a bit about um, Mashafe and Goldman and stuff like that, but, but not really very much. Um, it was really. It was a book that was my settling my own accounts, really. Um, settling your own accounts? Trying to work out what I thought about a lot of this kind of theoretical work that was going on, and um, which was invading, you know, like, that, that was becoming the, the kind of lingua franca for the humanities, and somewhat the social sciences. And um, I didn't always love it, and I didn't always um, kind of think it was very useful. I was trying to like, be, um, I should say, open-minded about it. Um, 
but my you know let's put it this way it's my, it's my only book with, where you wouldn't necessarily find my answers yes isn't it a bit more psychoanalytic for example yeah in its more, more well it was about the theories of subjectivity yes. so I guess it has to go there oh I'm not cool yes you are <laughs> I'm so, really not <laughs> Thank you. Though. But it, but it was also it was also it really was a literally literally a working out of things. I, I was trying to understand some of the things I was reading, and I trying to put them into like relation to each other um, in ways which actually only a few people tried to do in those days. I'm not, I'm not saying I was very successful, but I should get some points for trying. <laughs> um, now speaking about I mean, wanting, that, sorry, go ahead. There yeah. are a few, yeah. like, and, and look at them. There were things like um, Jonathan Culler's Structuralist Poetics, or there was um, Jameson's Prison House of Language, and then uh, things like Coward and Ellis, Language and Materialism. There, there, there were all these things which you know, didn't really kind of have quite the same aim as I did, which was to try and see that does any of this stuff actually work? Right, right, sure. <laughs> can, 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 can you really use it for anything? Now, tell us about the story of men and feminism because it was a book that was a huge influence on me um, and I'm delighted to hear that it's coming back into print. So tell us a bit about what it was and what's going to happen to it 25 years on. Oh, the, the latter, I have no idea. I, I'm, I'm sure it'll just look like a period piece. I mean, it, it just won't, it won't look... It won't look sophisticated at all. Do you know this book, Billy? I know. Um, it has. It's. It's got a great piece by Derrida at the beginning that I really love, and a nice introduction by Paul and Alice Jardine. She was the editor. And it has that Peter Sutcliffe piece. No, no, no Peter Sutcliffe. Oh, oh, Andrew's Andrew Ross's thing about yeah, um, Andrew the Ripper. Yeah, yeah. Peter Sutcliffe, I forgot about Ripper, that. I forgot which about that. Really cool. Sorry, Andrew. And it has a piece by you on Clint, doesn't it? Somebody else on Clint. Can't is remember. there a Clint? Isn't there a Clint piece? We're talking about 1987. <laughs> you edited the bloody thing. I know, but um, those weren't the main. Those weren't the, the main pieces. I'm sorry. No, well, I know. I mean, the, 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 thing, the things which, which cause problems at the time or cause um, controversy at the time were things like, um, uh, well, Stephen Heath's opening article, um, which was really very weird and wonderful. Incredibly um, strange. And strange. Almost one of, must one of the last things he published yeah. that I ever read. No, I think, no, I think. He was the real British heart beating heart of uh, French film theory as applied to screen. The author of mad, incredibly lengthy psychoanalytic analyses of texts, but quite brilliant. And full of this sort of difficult for me, a man to understand feminism and stuff. But uh, uh, a lot of a lot of the um, content of the book was really the women writing against the men and saying, uh, essentially, you might think that you're like, helping out, but we're not quite so sure. <laughs> and so there was a... And I think that's a period. That, that's that, a period that is a period. That you, don't, you, you wouldn't... You, might come again. People wouldn't say that now. No. Even the people who said it us. then wouldn't say no. that. No. 
<laughs> You're not helping. Shut up. But then, <laughs> but then we wouldn't. But then we wouldn't have had to say some of the things that we've said then either, uh, as men, as male subjects trying to um, like politically both help and understand. We wouldn't have to say some of the things we said then. But, um, one of the great things that came out of the book was that... Excuse me. I've got to do to get a drink around. <laughs> Go to the bar. It took me half an hour. Does anyone need anything? <laughs> no, I think One of the great things is... Um, I, I, I think what happened um, to, to Megan after that book... She actually, she actually once said to me, "That was that was my breakthrough moment." And, and her piece in the book is great. Brilliant. Yeah. It's really brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm thinking about five or six years after that, you edited a book that I think got a lot less attention, but that I also liked, called Boys. God, you, you're exhaustive and exhausting. You know, you know more about my books than I do. I, I say it again. What a pitiful status to occupy. Tell us about boys. Um, oh, I, I probably remember even less about that. <laughs> I once asked, I had a professor when I was in college, I was studying history, who wrote a book that I really liked, that wasn't one of the set texts that I bought anywhere, called Reform and Revolution. And he was an old right anti-Marxist right winger, but you know, of a kind during the Cold War that you could actually talk to, who wasn't insane, and had some reason to say the things he said. And I remember going to his office and saying, Mr. Fairbairn, on page 254 you say this. He said, oh dear boy, that written in and on vodka. In and on. In and on. Well, I can't say that about the boys' book, um, but I, I do remember very little about it, um, in, in the sense that I don't know why I did it. I, I, I can remember quite well some of the things in there, um, and some of them are really good. So that, it's a bit actually from men in feminism probably. I'm not sure what the project was. Um, I think I, th I think it was trying to it was trying to pull together a bunch of interesting people who were writing specifically about masculinity in in cultural objects, particularly media, but, but not just. Um, but I, but I didn't really have an agenda other than that. It was, it was really. Uh, I like these people's work, I like what they do. Let's bring them together. Um, see what the topic. My recollection is that you have a good introduction to short, pithy, as they say, <laughs> in Spain. And you talk about the same expression you use, which I've quoted in, as people like to say, who are graduate students, my own work, <laughs> or as people who are tenure professors say, as I've said elsewhere. Uh -huh. Something along the lines of men are a difficult thing to talk about. <laughs> very and difficult. Very intractable. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, I haven't put it well, but it's there. And uh, I thought that was an interesting thing to do. But gender, very important for you in men in feminism, in Pentecostal sort of culture production, in boys. In your later work, not quite so much. Um, do you think that's because it's become slightly less contentious for people on the left? I think I think it's become less interesting. 
for people on the left, honestly. Um, because I, I, I think if I, if I look back on some of those debates, if I, if I call them, um, it wouldn't it wouldn't always be wrong to say they were storms and teapots, or at least they're kind of unnecessary um, debates to be having when you know, a, a, a big kind of classic you know, I trust my allies and my friends kind of attitude would have, would have helped. Um, you know, you don't always have to be fighting with the people who are on your side. <laughs> so, I, I think from, from my perspective, like from my, uh, I, just, I, I just got taken into a different kind of register of things. Um, I became much less interested in all that kind of theoretical stuff that, that guided um, much of my early work. And I, moved, I, I suppose I moved with the times. I, mean, I, 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 I wanted my theory to be like much more like, down to earth. <laughs> I, I really, at a certain point, just did throw up my hands and say, you know, if I have to read another page of Derrida, I'm going to shoot myself. <laughs> because, yeah. because that way of talking just simply just didn't mean anything to me anymore. At a certain point, I, I, it just stopped. It just stopped being important. Um, however important he is to someone else, you know, me or Deleuze or whoever. You want to talk to me, talk to me. Uh, as the actress said to the bishop. <laughs> well, on that note, Paul Smith, thank you very much for coming into the pod, as the bishop said to the other bishop, as Rowan Williams said to whoever his successor may be, as Archbishop of Canterbury. And that's, that's just marked this moment, however. This is the moment when George Galloway re-emerged into the world. Did he win? Yeah. Uh, it's George Galloway <laughs> has just taken Bradford West, Bradford. which is a Labour Party stronghold, specifically because of a very particular kind of South Asian, should we say, municipal politics. Right. And George Galloway is a Labour rebel, um, a man who dressed up as a pussycat in an episode of Celebrity Big Brother oh, and was no. voted off the show. <laughs> and For a that. scoundrel, <laughs> but an immensely interesting person. I didn't know that he won the by-election. Fascinating. Uh, Paul, when your next project, the flowback book, I think we can call it, comes out, I hope you'll come back to the pod and share with the group some more of your wonderful insights. Anytime, I'd just like to get you to buy me a drink. <laughs> that can always be helpful.